0: Let me invite you to turn now to the book of Genesis and to chapter 22, Genesis 22. If you just back up a couple of verses, we'll actually begin reading in chapter 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord it will be provided father we need you to provide for us today bread for our souls food for our souls speak to us we pray help us now we ask point us to your great love To your great son on this resurrection morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Abraham and Sarah at the end of chapter 21 had finally settled in. Their vagabond days of wandering about and living in makeshift tents were over. Sarah had maybe gotten her home decorated finally just the way she liked it. Abraham perhaps had planted himself a little garden The servants must have learned the ins and outs of the surrounding hillsides, perfecting their seasonal routines of cattle driving and sheep herding. And best of all, in this home where they sojourned for many days, there was Isaac. He was becoming a young man now. He had proven to be a faithful and obedient son. He was learning to worship the Lord, the God of his father. His shoulders were broad. His face was becoming like the face of a man. Everything. Seemed just right. Abraham and Sarah were living what we call the American dream. And now this, now after God had given them rest, now after he had seemingly given them every earthly blessing, comes Genesis 22 two. take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Why, Abraham must have thought, why this, Lord? Why now, Lord, anything but Isaac? This must be some mistake. The wrenching in Abraham's heart, though, must have answered his own question. Why this? Why Isaac? Why now? Because God had given Abraham so much, hadn't he? He had blessed him. And like us, Abraham must have been tempted to love God's blessings more than he loved God himself. And God's crowning blessing, Abraham's most prized possession, was his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved. And thus, the loss of Isaac would be the keenest test of Abraham's faith in God and his love toward God. Would he still love God if God took away his gifts? Would he still love God if God took away his son, his only son, whom he loved, Isaac, now, those are questions we have to ask ourselves, aren't they? This was one reason why God tested Abraham. Would he love God more than anything else? But there was also another reason for this test, which is why we consider it this resurrection morning. God was going to use the testing of Abraham and Isaac to paint for us a portrait of God's son, his only son, whom he loves. Jesus he's painting here a picture for us of what we call the gospel or the good news I'm sure many of you as we read these verses already began to connect the dots between Genesis 22 and between the events of Good Friday where Jesus died on the cross, and resurrection morning where he came out of the tomb. The mosaic of the crucifixion story that God pieces together here in Genesis 22 is marvelous, it's beautiful, and I think it's crystal clear. The parallels here are amazing from Genesis 22 to Good Friday and... Resurrection Sunday morning. And I want to draw your attention at some length to three profound connections, three profound portraits of the gospel that this 22nd chapter of Genesis provides for us. First, I want you to notice Abraham's sacrifice. Then we'll think about Isaac's obedience. And then finally, we'll think about that ram caught in the thicket. So let's begin, first of all, thinking about Abraham's sacrifice. What a test. Abraham faced, take now your son, God said in verse two, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Offer him up like you would offer a sheep or a goat for a burnt offering. Can you imagine that? There are a few of us in the room, not many. There are a few of us who know what it is to lose a child. And I can only imagine how difficult that would be. But imagine God asking you to lose your child willingly and at your own hands. This was an astonishing request coming from the God of heaven. Not least because Isaac had been a miracle child, you remember. He was born to Abraham and Sarah when they were well into their retirement years, so to speak. Well past the time for bearing children. And furthermore, Isaac had been born as a direct promise from on high. And now the same God who promised Isaac and who gave Isaac this miracle child was going to take him away in the prime of his youth. It was a sore test. And as I said a moment ago, it's a test we should all contemplate. Would we, like Abraham, still serve God if he took away our everything? That's one practical question to ask when reading Genesis 22. But as I stated off the top, there's something else to see when we look into the tormented face of Abraham as he considers this test. Yes, we should hope to see in his face a reflection of our own face. We should hope to see in Abraham's face a reflection of the kind of faith we would have if God took away what was most precious to us. But we should also see mirrored in Abraham's countenance here in Genesis 22, a portrait of our Heavenly Father who willingly gave up his son. That's the mirror I want to spend the next few minutes looking into. I want you to see in Abraham a picture, a reflection, albeit an imperfect one, of the Heavenly Father, of the sacrifice he made, of the kind of commitment it took, of the kind of heart. It must have taken for him to go through with the sacrifice of his only son. Upon reading Genesis 22, one cannot help but notice that the circumstances of Abraham's sacrifice are almost identical to those of the Heavenly Father as he prepared to offer his son up on the cross. The language of Genesis 22 sounds strikingly similar to what we read in the New Testament, doesn't it? You'll notice, for instance, the familiar ring of the words, your only son. The reason that phrase sounds so recognizable to us is probably not because we know Genesis 22 so well, but because this terminology, only son, was one of the Apostle John's favorite ways of referring to Jesus. God's only begotten son. Maybe John used that phrase So that we would be careful to notice the symbolism in Genesis 22. Both Jesus and Isaac were only sons. Both were to be offered up as sacrifices by their father's own hands. And both were to be offered up as sacrifices in the mountains of Moriah. Now, in the case of Isaac, verse 2 makes the location clear, doesn't it? Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. But if you were to take a Bible concordance and look up the place name Moriah, you would find that centuries later, David, king in Israel, built up his capital city, Jerusalem, on this same spot. And that Solomon, his son, later built the temple of God in this very same spot where Abraham was to sacrifice his son. And here it was that God himself offered up his only son in the land of Moriah. Furthermore, we should be struck by the fact that Isaac was to be offered up by his very own father. Just like Jesus Isaac wasn't going to die of natural causes or as the result of some accident, nor was it that the servant, in verse 5, would come up the hill with him and that he would have to wield the sacrificial knife. No, Abraham himself, verse 2, was to offer him there. And that, too, is a picture of the gospel, a picture of the heavenly Father. That's what the Bible says happened with Jesus. It was his own Father who offered him up. Jesus, too, didn't die by accident. It wasn't simply that the rising tide of political opposition finally overtook him before his time. And though the Jewish leaders forced and the Roman soldiers drove the nails, Isaiah chapter 53 reminds us that just as God had instructed Abraham so long before, the father himself was ultimately to offer the sacrifice that day on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5 and Isaiah 53, 10. It was the Lord who was pleased to crush him. I say again that the parallels are striking. An only son sacrificed by his father in the mountains of Moriah. There can be little doubt that God intends for us to see in Genesis 22 a kind of dress rehearsal for the great sacrifice that has been made for us in Jesus. And we should note that, along with similar circumstances in these events, the Heavenly Father, along with Abraham, must have experienced similar emotions as well. I don't believe we can say that the Heavenly Father was tormented like Abraham must have been in his soul Surely the Heavenly Father wasn't torn about whether to go through with his sacrifice, because unlike Abraham, the sacrifice of Jesus was God's own idea, planned before the dawn of time. So God wasn't a bundle of nerves as he walked towards Jesus' cross like Abraham might have been. And yet we should not go to the other extreme and assume that God was somehow stoic or unmoved by what he had to do and what his son must endure at the cross. Yes, he was immovably committed to making his son a sacrifice for our sins, but the father must somehow have felt the sorrow and the sadness of it all. He surely entered in some way into the very same experience of Abraham. Few of us, I said, have buried a child. But if you have, or if you've ever had that sinking feeling only by the way of a nightmare, you understand at least something Of what God, in whose image we are made, must have felt that day. Surely God did not experience the death of his son without grief. Grief at watching his son suffer. Grief at having to cause the suffering himself. Grief that your sin and my sin necessitated such suffering. And yet, like Abraham, he did go through with it. Which brings me to another way that Abraham's sacrifice mirrors that of the Heavenly Father, not only in their circumstances, not only in the emotions that they must have felt, but they did so, both of them, with identical hope. Hope. How was it that Abraham was able to obey God's command and sacrifice his only son? Why did he go through with it? Why did he go on up the mountain and bring the wood and the knife and the fire? Well, surely he did it, first of all, because he had a strong sense of duty. He wanted to obey the Lord no matter the cost. But Abraham also was able to hear God's voice and go up that mountain with his son, as the author of Hebrew tells us, because he believed, Hebrews eleven nineteen that God is able even to raise people from the dead. In other words, Abraham, as he was walking up the hill that day, was saying to himself, it's okay, Isaac was a miracle in the first place. It was a miracle that God gave him life and the God who gave him miraculous life can surely make him miraculously alive again. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. And he said to himself, after all, God did promise that through Isaac, our little family would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So surely this death of Isaac cannot be the end. That's why he was able to tell the servant, as we read, that we'll go and offer and then we will come back to you, Isaac knew that God could raise the dead. What a wonderful thing to remember on Easter morning. And of course, God knew that about himself, right? And so it was in the certainty of the resurrection, just like Abraham, that God sacrificed and buried his own son. And Do you know what I think? I think God wanted us to read Genesis 22 and see not only Abraham's great sacrifice, but his own. Do you ever consider that? Do you ever just contemplate what it cost God to give up His Son for you? And how it must have stricken His heart to do so? It's an amazing thing that God has done for us and we mustn't overlook it. Allow Just for a moment, allow the parental emotion of Genesis 22 to carry you heavenward so that you understand just a little bit better. What the Heavenly Father did for you. How much He must love you. And if you have never received that love before, if you've been running from it so that you can do your own thing, stop this instant and turn around and run back to a Father who loves you enough to give His only begotten Son for you. Think about what that means. Think about what it is to lose a child. Think about what it means that God did so willingly for you. Sinclair Ferguson in his book, Grow in Grace, has said we would almost think that God loves us more than he loves his only son. If he'd give him up for us, we would almost think that God loves us more than he loves his only son. Now, we know that's not true. He loves his son more than anyone, but it almost sounds like it doesn't. God gave his only son whom he loves, Jesus, for us. And if you can feel even a fraction of the weight of that sentence, can you keep one moment longer from embracing this God from running to him and loving him and trusting him in return? In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Abraham's sacrifice mirrors the father's, but now... Also, I want you to see reflected in Genesis 22, not only what the father went through, but what the son went through for you. We've seen how our heavenly father is pictured in Abraham's sacrifice. And I want you to consider now, secondly, how the heavenly son is pictured in Isaac's obedience. Think about Isaac's obedience in this passage. Surely Isaac's heart was as full as his father's that day, especially as we approach verse 8. In verse 7, Isaac had asked an honest, innocent question. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And maybe Abraham's answer in verse 8 comforted him somewhat. God will provide for himself the lamb. But by the time we get to verse 9, Abraham is removing the bundle of wood from Isaac's back and arranging it for the offering, and then placing Isaac himself on the altar. Now don't fail to notice who was carrying the lumber here in verse 6. It was Isaac. And for it to have been enough wood to sustain a fire that would consume a human body, it must have been no small cord of wood. And what that means, of course, is that Isaac must have been no small boy. Surely in order to carry this amount of wood up the mountainside, he was now well into his teenage years, if not beyond when these events take place. So this is not Abraham manhandling a second grader and tying him down to the altar and the little boy sort of having no clue what's really happening. Isaac was a strapping young man and he knew what was happening. Add to that also the fact that Abraham, his father, is now a hundred years plus. And what becomes clear is that Isaac allowed his father to place him on that altar by the time we get to verse 9 Isaac knew very well what was happening he knew that the lamb that God was providing was himself and strong enough to carry a large bundle of wood up the side of a mountain surely Isaac would have been strong enough to overpower a hundred plus year old man and yet that's not what we read Instead we read, verse 9, Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on top of the wood. Isaac, it cannot be doubted, went up onto that killing stone knowing full well what was happening and allowing it willingly. And once again, there's a lesson here for people like us. Genesis 22 begs the question, am I willing to submit to my heavenly Father the way Isaac submitted to To his father? Am I willing to obey God no matter what? Can I say with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him? Those are important questions, but more important, really, is that once again, Genesis 22 sketches for us not only a portrait of what we ought to be, but a portrait of what Jesus actually is. Yes, Jesus' heart was heavy, just like Isaac's must have been. He even prayed in Luke 22 that God might allow the cup of suffering to pass him by. But very quickly, at the end of that prayer, he reminded his father that he was willing, after all, to be laid on the altar. Not my will, he said, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to God's plan, just like Isaac. Yes, like Isaac, he could have wriggled himself free. Jesus could have ended his prayer in the garden with remove this cup from me period he didn't have to go on and say yet not what i will but you what you will he could have just said remove this cup from me and it's possible that the father would have obliged and we know that he could have come down from the cross as the scoffers challenged him to do in mark 15 he could have called he said more than 12 legions of angels to come and rescue him He didn't have to stay bound to the altar, bound to the cross like Isaac. But like Isaac so many years before in the land of Moriah, he did. And aren't we thankful he did? But why did he do so? Why did Jesus stay there? Why didn't he come down from the cross? Well, part of the answer is in that song by Stuart Townend that we often sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, when he says, It was my sin that held him there it was my sin that held him there in other words one reason Jesus stayed on the cross one reason he willingly endured death was because he loves me and he loves you and because our sin necessitated that he die for us our need of forgiveness held him there surely Jesus stayed on the cross out of love for us But I submit to you there was an even larger reason he stayed bound to the altar, hanging there on the cross. A greater love that kept him from calling the twelve legions of angels to rescue him. And it was the same reason why Isaac, it would seem, did not wrestle himself free from his father's grip in Genesis 22. Because he loved and trusted and wanted to honor his father. That, it would appear, is why Isaac allowed himself to be bound to the altar and why he, why he stayed there once the knots were tied. And that's certainly why Jesus went to the cross and did not come down when he so easily could have, because he loved and trusted and wanted to honor his father. The Apostle Paul makes this clear in Philippians 2.8 when he tells us that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Obedience. That's why Jesus prayed, not my will but yours be done. That's why he didn't come down from the cross. That's why he left the angels in heaven that day because he loved his Father and longed more than anything else to obey him. We might put it this way. It was Jesus' consistent, never failing love for and obedience to his Father that made him fit to go to the cross as a sinless sacrifice to die in our place in the first place. And it was Jesus' consistent, never-failing love for and obedience to his Father that kept him on the cross as well. Let me say that again. It was the fact that Jesus consistently never failed to love and obey his Father that made him without sin so that he could die for sinners. And it was his consistent, never-failing love for and obedience to his Father that kept him on the cross once he was there. So praise God for the obedience of an only Son pictured worthily in the son of Abraham and fulfilled perfectly in the son of God. Now, exquisite as Isaac's obedience was, we've not yet reached the end of Genesis 22. The story only gets better and more like the good news as we finally look at the ram in the thicket. The obedience of Isaac The sacrifice of Abraham, but then we need to notice the ram in the thicket. The similarities between Isaac and Jesus, striking as they are, don't continue past verse 9. For just as Abraham was about to bring down the knife on his son's throat in verse 10, just as Isaac was about to give his life as a willing sacrifice, God called off the test, praise the Lord. Abraham had proved his faithfulness to God. He had not, verse 12, withheld from the Lord his only son whom he loved. And so the Lord allowed him to stay his hand. And then in verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son Isaac. How merciful God is. What grace he offered both Abraham and Isaac that day. Seemingly out of nowhere, but all according to God's gracious plan, there was a substitute for young Isaac. The knife was prone above his head, and yet in God's plan it came down upon another. Certain death was Isaac's portion, and yet death befell another in his place. There's no greater portrait of the gospel, perhaps, in all of Scripture Because you and I, because of our sins against a holy God, have lain exactly in the place of Isaac. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says. And therefore, in our unbelieving states, and some of us are still there this morning, we had, every one of us, whether we realized it or not, a knife of judgment always hanging above our heads. We deserve to die for our sins and we never knew when the knife might come down, when our number would be up, when our sins would be avenged, when we would drop off into eternity in the flames without God. And some of you may still be laying there today, never knowing when that will happen to you because you've not yet come to Christ. Apart from Christ, we walk constantly on the very precipice of an eternity, ready to slip in to death. And judgment without a moment's notice. And yet, the gospel says that it needn't be that way. The gospel says God has taken Jesus, like the ram here in verse 13, and offered him up in the place of sinners like you and like me. Jesus has died the death that we deserve in our place. I say the similarities between Isaac and Jesus ended in verse 9 because God spared Isaac. But Romans eight thirty two, God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. God did not spare his own son, but allowed him to be caught in the thicket of Jewish jealousies and Roman politics. He allowed him to be caught in the thicket of Judas Iscariot's deception, caught in the thicket of that crown of thorns and those nails, which, like the brush line in Genesis 22, held the sacrifice in place. And make no mistake, Jesus was caught there willingly. He knew what was at stake exactly. He understood that he was the ram, and he gladly allowed himself to be caught for us and offered up in our place. Jesus is our ram, willingly caught in the thicket of God's wrath against sin and laying down his life in place of so many Isaacs like you and me. Have you received him as such? Many of you have. And I trust, therefore, that Genesis 22 is another encouragement toward a grateful heart. But some of you may still be underneath that judgment sentence and trying to wriggle your way out from under the knife on your own. Some of you perhaps are still convincing yourself, God surely won't bring that knife down on me. I mean, I haven't done anything that bad. Others of you may be salving your consciences by saying, you know, God would never do that to anyone. God's love. Others of you perhaps are trying to talk God out of the punishment that you know your sins deserve by promising to do better and try harder, but you can never do better and try harder enough. And all the while, as we come up with reason after reason to believe the devil's lie, that you surely will not die, all the while we're doing that, I say there's a ram caught in the thicket. There's a substitute for sinners. There's a God-ordained way of escape. So will you not lay down your reasoning? Will you not cease your wriggling? Will you not give up on your wagering that everything will probably turn out just fine whether you really repent and trust Jesus or not? And will you not, in place of those things, indeed in place of yourself, trust in the ram caught in the thicket and offered up in the place of sinners? Jesus Christ, God's Son, His only Son whom he loves. Abraham the Bible makes clear again and again and again believed God. He believed that somehow some way verse 8 God would provide a lamb. And you observing all these things in retrospect see that God has provided a lamb far more clearly than Abraham ever did. But do you believe?